following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, we're going to go into the text now. We're going to be reading uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 33 to 44, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. If you'll look at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let me bow your heads and pray with me. Jesus, we come today to your word to see you, not just to see what you can do, not to, to see the mighty works you perform, but to see you and to just be amazed at who you are. It is so easy for us, Lord, to read these stories, stories that are so familiar to us, and not even give them a second thought. They just pass through one ear right out the other. Our hearts are unaffected. Our minds aren't even engaged. Lord, may that not be true today. Here, Lord, in this story, you are being put on display in a way that I imagine very few of us have realized here. And so open our eyes to see this. Help us to appreciate you and to just finish this time together today in worship, in worship and in praise to you, your greatness, to, to, to what you have accomplished for us, to what you have come to save us from. Lord, we, we just want to see you this morning. And so I give you this time. I ask that your spirit will open our hearts to praise today, to to just be in awe of you. We give this time to you. Give me freedom as I speak, I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning, as well as the one that's going to come uh, after it, I, I won't be preaching next week, as I said, but the week after, it's, it's one of those passages in the Bible that I think uh, everyone knows really, really well, including unbelievers, as you just read for yourselves. Today we're looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, something that you've probably heard numerous times uh, uh, in the past. The scene that comes after this, if you just look ahead in Mark 6, is the story of Jesus walking on water. Two stories many people be familiar with, and I would assume that particularly in a room like this, given the background of many of you, that, that most all of you are super familiar with these stories as well. And so, be, because I think I'm safe in assuming that this is a well-known story for, uh, for all of us, I want to begin where I normally end a sermon by asking you to engage your mind just for a moment. And, and don't answer this out loud, but I want to ask you a question. What is Mark's point 
here in this story. Now, I'm asking you this up front because, again, I'm assuming you're all very familiar. Most of you are very familiar with this story. You've read it numerous times. So it should be really simple, right, that you can just think about this story and quickly determine the point that if I asked you to, to, to come and take my place because I need to sit down for some reason and say, hey, just stand up here and tell them the point of this story is that Jesus is blank or that Jesus does blank or Jesus whatever, okay, fill in the blank. Think about it just for a second. What exactly would you say? Uh, I'm asking a question here that, that I'm trying to figure out, why did Mark include this particular story? And I'll throw in this little side note, just kind of more as an anecdote than anything else. As you look through the Gospels, and I, I spent a lot of time earlier this year doing this, working on this little project. As you look through the Gospels, you realize there are very few stories that all four Gospel writers include. Very few really. There, multiple ones will include stories, like two will include this story, three will include this story. There's actually quite a number of stories that only one gospel writer includes, stuff that stood out to them as they were writing down this account. There are very few times that all four find a moment so significant that they all four include it, outside, of course, of the crucifixion. That's kind of the, the given there. This is one of those stories that all four find so significant that they include it. So, so why? It's a fairly simple question, right? Right? No? <laughs> No, I'm glad you think so. I don't know. I, I, I don't want you to tell me your answer anyway, but, but my guess would be that many of you, if I asked, if I went around the room and said, well, what did you think? Well, what did you think? What did you think? That you would give me some version of this answer that the purpose of the story is to show that Jesus is powerful or that he can do anything or that he can create some version of that kind of idea that, that Jesus can do something really amazing. The emphasis of your answer, I think, would be on, on Jesus's power. And I would have answered that question the same way prior to this week, but after studying through this, I've come to realize that that's not the point at all. Because if you think about it, the reality is, is that Mark has already shown us Jesus's power over and over and over and over again. So you know, think about the time in Mark 1 where he touches the leper, right? He touches the leper and instantly healed. I mean, it's not like the lady with the issue of blood where you can't really see it on the outside. This is a guy whose skin is rotting off his body, and the people who are standing around see the moment Jesus touches him, boom, the guy's healed. That's, that's power, is it not? Or, or, or think about all the times that he casts out demons over and over and over. And he comes up, up against some of the, the darkest forces of evil, and he doesn't have to fight. He doesn't have to do like a special dance or an incantation. He just says, hey, get out. And they instantly obey. That's power. Uh, uh, think about him calming the sea with his words when the disciples think they're about to die. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care? And he stands up and says, peace, be still. Instantly, wind and sea go flat. They go still talk about him raising the girl from the dead? Like, if you are not yet convinced that Jesus is powerful, I don't really know what more Mark can do for, the, for you in that area. You either believe that he's powerful at this point or you don't. Because there's really, apart maybe from the resurrection, apart, apart maybe from the very end of the story, I just don't know that there's anything more Mark can, Mark can say. And so if that's not the point, if that's not what Mark is, is trying to get you to see, then I come back to my original question and I say, well, what is the point then? Why does Mark and all the other gospel writers include this one story? And, and, and I would 
say that the fact that we can't quickly or easily answer that question is another proof of the damage that has been done to us by that effect I gave you a few weeks ago, the flannel graph effect. Remember that? When I showed you that, uh, this picture and reminded you of how many of us grew up in Sunday school when our teachers would, would tell us Bible stories and they would uh, use that little felt board with the movable pictures and put on there to help us read or see the story, to illustrate it for us. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm great with telling stories. I'm great with, with illustrating them. I like to illustrate stories too. But the problem that I'm highlighting with that method, at least for me, as I was taught those stories as a kid, is that when those stories were taught to me, they were often taught in an encapsulated, disjointed kind of way. You remember me you know, articulating that? By encapsulated, I mean that there was really like it didn't matter what happened before or happened after. It was as if the story that you read that particular Sunday was all that there was, and it, that's all you need to know. It's kind of like Little Red Riding Hood. Like what, what kind of parent sends Little Red Riding Hood out into the woods with a basket of food, right? Does anyone ever think about that part of the story? Or the PTSD she must have had after she was cut out of the wolf's stomach? Of course not, right? Because that's not the point of the story. It's encapsulated. You don't need to think about the beginning. You don't need to think about the end. It's all there is. And it's also not just encapsulated, but particularly for something like the scriptures, when those stories are being taught to us in Sunday school, they're disjointed. They're not tied to one another to show that each little individual scene is actually a part of a much larger story that if you could see the larger story, all those little individual stories would make so much more sense None of that was communicated to me through flannel graphs as a kid. I'm not accusing my teachers. I'm just making a point. And, and I think that that, that that problem of reading these stories accurately describes the way many of us have read most of these gospel stories in the past and unfortunately still read them today, including particularly this one. And because of that, we just miss the bigger picture of what's going on here. And so what I want to do today is I want to try to show you that bigger picture this morning if I can as you'll recall, this story that we just read together is part of a, a larger section in which Mark is trying to show us that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ, okay? That he is the Messiah, that he is the, the one who is going to come in fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, uh, prophecies and promises that we're going to rescue God's people and usher in a new covenant, a new way for man and woman to have a, a relationship with God. And Mark opened this section here with a preview of what's ahead, both for this Messiah and for those who would follow him. That's what we were looking at the last two Sundays. This idea that just as John the Baptist was killed by Herod as a result of his preaching, it's going to happen to Jesus too, right? It's going to happen to Jesus, and it potentially is going to happen to his disciples. If you want to follow Jesus, understand that the cost is danger. The cost is your life. If you're going to, to go out and preach the message of God to a world that is hostile to God, you just need to be ready. He, he opens this section with that, that, that warning, that reality there, or this preview of what's, a, what's ahead. And so having given us that glimpse of what's to come, Mark now turns to showing us that Jesus really is this Christ who is worth giving your life for. He's worth giving everything for that he really is the promised one of God. And to do that, he begins with this story. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin by just kind of quickly walking us through it just to make sure that you understand the surface details, okay? Because you're familiar. I don't need to like 
elaborate on everything, but I just want to make sure you understand the surface details. And then having done that, I want to go through it a second time in order to show you Mark's deeper point. So let's just do the first pass through here. Story picks up here in verse 33 with many people, Mark says, seeing Jesus and his disciples leaving on a boat. If you remember back to the end of the last story, the 12 disciples whom he had sent out to go around preaching his message and uh, performing his works, he, he sent them out. They now have come back and they've given Jesus a report on all that they had said and done, all that had been accomplished during that time. And after hearing their report, Jesus decides back in verse 31 that he and they should just... They should just get away for a bit to rest because specifically they're so inundated with people, Mark notes, that they don't even have time to eat, which is kind of funny since we're about to go into an eating episode, right? They don't even have time to, to eat. And I want you just to, to note this problem because and this is always going to be the case with ministry, is it not? Like if you really engaged in doing the work of Jesus and preaching the words of Jesus to everyone around you, ministry is just going to find you all the time. <laughs> and every now and then, you're going you're gonna to need some downtime. It's going to be very tiring and challenging. And, and Jesus recognizes this both for himself and for the 12. And so he decides that they need to take a little breather. So in verse 32, they got into a boat and they left to go, Mark says, to a desolate place by themselves, which is where we pick up in verse 33. In verse 33, the crowd see them get in the boat and they see which direction they're going. And they're like, hey, we should follow him. Like, he doesn't really need any downtime. Let's, let's go follow him. And so they recognize him. They begin to run there on foot, Mark says, so they could be waiting when the boat comes ashore. And you might be wondering, well, how do they know where he's going? Huh? That's a good question. The, the, the lake he's on, the Sea of Galilee, it's not that big. So they might be able to just watch him from the seashore. Or it might be that they just knew where he liked to go to get away. Okay? Either case, it doesn't really matter. They run ahead. And Mark indicates that the crowd that is heading to the spot is growing larger than just those who saw him get on the boat because he knows that this crowd, uh, that the crowd that's waiting to hear him when he comes ashore has come from all the towns that are, that are near that area. And you can almost see it. Imagine the first few guys see him get on the boat and they leave and they start running. And as they're running, the people along the way are like, where are you going? Jesus is going over there. Oh, really? They start coming too. Where are you guys going? Jesus. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And Mark tells us that by the time that they go ashore, it has become a great crowd. And we've seen crowds in the past in Mark, have we not? Crowds are always positive for Jesus, right? No. Crowds are normally negative for Jesus. Sometimes they're neutral, but they're normally negative. And this time it's not just a crowd, Mark notes. It is a great crowd that has gathered in this desolate spot to see and hear Jesus. And I'd, I'd pause at this point and ask you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. I mean, if if you're Jesus, you're the disciples, and uh, you've been really busy in ministry, and you're, you're burnt out, you're tired, it's, it's, you haven't even had a chance to eat, you're trying to get away from people, and all of a sudden, the few people that you were trying to get away from have swelled into unknown numbers at this moment, to, to, how would you respond? Probably like I respond sometimes when people call me when I don't want to be called, like, can you leave me alone just for like five minutes? What's wrong with you? Like... I would, I would be so frustrated, and Jesus' note here isn't frustrated because Mark tells us that Jesus had what on them? Compassion. He had compassion on them, and because, if you underline in your, your Bible, this is the line to underline, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Note that. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he begins to teach them many things, Mark says. The, the very first thing he gives this, this crowd that is like sheep without a shepherd, he gives them teaching. He gives them God's words. And, and I would love to know what he taught them here, but apparently Mark doesn't care because he doesn't record anything about that for us here. He just bypasses it and he jumps ahead to the end of the day. And Mark writes that when it grew late, his disciples come to Jesus and they said, listen, Jesus, obviously you don't know this, but this is a desolate place. And you obviously don't know what time it is because the hour is now late. They are so patronizing to him sometimes. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and let them buy themselves something to eat. And I don't know if this indicates that they're frustrated with the situation or if they're really genuinely concerned maybe for the crowds. I have no no way of knowing that. It doesn't really matter because, again, Mark bypasses that and jumps right to Jesus' response. Jesus looks at them and says, no, you give them something to eat. And for the disciples, I appreciate the honesty with which their responses are recorded, because they respond exactly as I would have had I been in their shoes. They hear Jesus' response, you give them something to eat. They turn around, and they look at the crowd, they do a quick calculation and estimation in their mind, and they say back to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It, that doesn't make any or mean anything to you, but but a denarii is about uh, the equivalent of a working man's day wage. Okay, so you're a you're a regular Joe, you're a field laborer. You're going to spend all day out in the sun working in the field. When you get done, you're going to get a denarii. Think of it for a modern equivalent as a guy working at McDonald's making minimum wage. He's going to work all day. When he goes home, he's got seven twenty-five an hour for for eight hours. You're gonna you want us to go out and spend two hundred days worth of income? To, to, that, are you sure that would even be enough to feed this crowd? The question that they ask him is like somewhere between rhetorical and sarcastic. I don't know where, okay? It's somewhere in that spectrum. Uh, I, in other words, it's indicating that they clearly don't think this is doable. Jesus, what, what do you mean go give them something to eat? They're not being pessimistic here, I would note. They're being realistic. Jesus is the one who's being unrealistic with what he's asked them to do. So from here, it gets pretty simple. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They go, look around, find some food. Perhaps the only food that's around them is five loaves of bread and two fish. And so verse 39, he commands the people to sit down, notice in groups. Notice also on the green grass, okay, pointing out special important things. So they do. They sit in groups by, by hundreds and by fifties. And if you're wondering why they do it in such numbers, I'll, I can't answer that exactly. Uh, exactly, but I'll give you something really interesting. Pause. Okay, really interesting to me. Um, someone I was reading noted that there may be more to this scene than what Mark has recorded, because some people believe that what you see happening here by the sea that day is an attempt by the people to take Jesus and get him to lead them in a revolt. Because, and, and there's a number of clues in the text. One, all of the gospel writers emphasize the number of men, men specifically. They mention that women and children are there, but you don't get the idea that they're there in large numbers. There's a big emphasis on the number of men. Number two, when they sit down, they sit in regimental-sized groups, 50s and 100s. It's an odd. Jesus told them to sit down in groups. They sit down in these numbers. John, when he tells us the story, tells us that at the end, the people wanted to rise up, take Jesus by force, and make him king. 
And in all four accounts, when Jesus finishes with this scene, he like rushes the disciples out of there faster than whatever, okay? <laughs> he gets them out of town. Like, get in the boat now and go, as if he doesn't want them around for what's about to happen, and he deals with the crowd on his own. So, so you've got these clues that maybe something else is going on in this particular scene. I don't know if that's true, but it definitely makes sense. Regardless, they sit down in these very ordered groups. And I want you to note four verbs and the order of these verbs in verse 41 very carefully. Number one, he takes the bread. He takes this bread. He looks up to heaven. Number two, he says a blessing. Number three, he breaks the loaves. And number four, he gives them to the disciples to set before the people, okay? You see that? He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Just note that for a moment. He does the same with the fish. And now the big finale, they all ate and were satisfied, meaning they didn't just like get a little like crumb from each thing so everyone could say they ate. No, they ate so much they were full. He, they ate so much that there's leftovers. Jesus has made too much food. He's like your grandma, right? He made too much food. They can't eat everything he's made for them. They end up taking up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and uneaten fish. Nobody can eat anymore. This is amazing. It's a miracle. And finally, now Mark at the end tells us the size of the crowd. He just fed 5,000 men, not including women and children who may have been there in the scene. Wow, right? Amazing. Now that you understand all of those surface details, are reminded, refreshed of them, can I walk us through this again just a little bit deeper? If you had been there that day, or if you had been one of Mark's original Jewish uh, readers or listeners hearing the story for the first time, you would not have seen this or heard this and thought, oh, Jesus is powerful. <laughs> like, not at all. Not even close. Because when you either saw or heard what was going on here, you would have instantly recognized the significance of the setting of the words and of the events of what has just transpired, transpired before us here in this story. So to help you see it, let me ask you a trivia question that I don't expect many of you to know. It's, it's half Old Testament history. It's half first century Judaism history, okay? It's kind of in between. And here is the question. Who are the two most famous characters in the Old Testament in the eyes of the average Jewish person of Jesus' day, okay? Who are the two most famous Old Testament characters who would have been most prominent in the minds of the Jewish people of Jesus' day? Here's your answer. It's Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, these are the two characters who are going to show up at the transfiguration, right? When Jesus goes up on the mountain and, and he is transfigured before the three disciples and who comes and, and shows up with him, it's Moses and Elijah. They, they're focused on these guys. Elijah is one of those people that Jesus is regularly confused with throughout the Gospels to date because people are thinking about him a lot. They think about Moses and Elijah quite a bit. In the mind of a first century Jew, these two servants of God epitomize the Old Testament and the promises of God to his people. 
Moses is the, the great deliverer, the one who brought God's law, God's old covenant, right, to the people. He's, he's the beginning of the nation in some respects. Yeah, Abraham's the father, but, but it's through Moses that God delivers. It's through Moses that he establishes a way for the people to have a relationship with God. And Elijah was clearly the greatest of the prophets, the greatest of the messengers of God. He's the one who called God's people back to faithfulness to the old covenant. And both of these characters are associated with the Messiah in the average person of that day's mind. If you were to sit down with someone and be like, who do you think about when you think of, when you think of the Messiah? What kind of things come to your mind? Well, they would they'd talk about Moses and Elijah. Moses is the one who prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15 that one day God would raise up a prophet like him in whose mouth God would put his words to speak to the people. Okay, do you? Have you ever read that in the Old Testament? Elijah was the one taken up by God to heaven and whom God himself promised would come to prepare the way of the Messiah. And so the people are expecting a, a prophet like Moses, a, a prophet like Elijah to arise and that this person would be the Messiah. It is with that expectation and understanding that I would ask you to consider this story again. Where are they at when the story begins? They're in a desolate place, a wilderness, if you will. Who is with Jesus? A great number of the people of Israel, 5,000 specifically in this case. But it's a, it's a crowd so large that it overwhelms the disciples. What does Jesus give them when he comes to them? He gives them teaching. Excuse me, what does he first give them? He gives them teaching. He gives the words of God to the people. And, and when they get hungry, what does he do? Well, he provides food in the wilderness miraculously. Does that remind you of anything <laughs> from one of your flannel graph stories as a kid? Anything like jumping in your head now, like as you think about that in a little bit different light? Because it should remind you of both Moses and Elijah. Because Moses, he led the people of Israel, the great crowds out of Egypt into the wilderness. He was their deliverer. He was their savior. And in Numbers 27, 17, as Moses is at one point looking out over the crowds, he has so much love and compassion for them there in Numbers 27 that he stops and he prays to God, God, when I'm gone, please give them another leader so that they will not be like sheep without a shepherd? Jesus is quoting Moses when he sees them. Even his heart towards them is reminding you of that. When Moses delivered them out of Egypt, the first thing he did when he got them into the desert was to give them the words of God at Sinai. That's the first provision of God to his people is to give them those 10 words, those 10 commandments and the rest of the law first provision to the people. But eventually, of course, you know, they run out of food and Moses has to feed the crowds. And he's like, what do I do? And he prays to God and God gives them manna and quail, bread and meat until they're full. <laughs> think also of Elijah. And, and I think you should add in Elisha, his servant with him, because Elijah and Elisha are very linked in the Old Testament, okay? Because Elisha gets a double portion of Elijah's power and, and, and ability with God. And so, so Elijah, after delivering, or excuse me, yeah, after delivering God's message to the people, what, what does God do to the nation of Israel because of their sin? He sends a drought, right? 
There's a drought. Everything's dying. They're in a wilderness. The whole land has become a wilderness because of this. And Elijah's starving, as, is many other, as are many other people. And so what does he do? He finds a widow, and God provides unlimited food for their household through, through Elijah. Think about Elisha later on in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. Uh, uh, some men have come to Elisha to, to see him, to talk with him. And Elisha's servant is walking into this scene, and he's got some, some food, just a few loaves of bread and some, some grains of wheat on his back. And Elisha sees him and says to his servant, hey, feed, feed these men. And the guy's like, what? how can I possibly feed all these people with this little bit of food? And Elisha just says back to him, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And the servant sets the food down before them. And miraculously, all the men eat. And guess what? They have leftovers, according to the word of the Lord. So, listen, here's my point. If you were there that day, or, or if you were familiar enough with these Old Testament stories to, to recognize it, you would have an instantly seen the obvious connection that Mark is making here between Jesus and what he's doing in this setting with these people and all of those events. Because what happened with Moses, what happened with Elijah and Elisha, it's happening again. But this time, it's different and better. Because this time, it's not someone saying, uh, thus says the Lord. That's what Moses and Elijah and Elisha said. No, this time, Jesus says, I say to you. See, this time, he's not a conduit of truth. He is the source of truth. See, this time, it's not someone praying to God, God, please provide food for these people because of the situation that we're in. No, this time, Jesus just takes it on himself. He does it on his own. Boom, miraculously. It's like those Old Testament characters and scenes, but it's better. It's better because, note this, Someone greater than Moses and greater than Elijah is here. He didn't just come to deliver them from Roman rule, which is probably what they wanted, particularly that day in that scene. But he is coming to deliver them from a greater danger, from, from a greater enslaver than Rome. He's coming to deliver them from Satan and sin itself. He is leading the people of God on a new and greater exodus than what they could have ever hoped for, better than anything Moses ever did. He didn't just come to, to call them back to faithfulness to the old covenant. He came to establish a new covenant with all the people based on his own sacrifice of himself, his blood on the cross. And what Mark is showing us here is that this Jesus, this, this Messiah, this, this promised one, is the great and better deliverer of the people of God that the Old Testament had promised. This scene, if you understand it that way, is dripping with Old Testament imagery and meaning. I mean, it is, it is just dripping with it, all pointing to the fact that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Just think about the passage that Dave read to us earlier from Psalm 23. Uh, remember in verse 39, I made you note something about where what Jesus did. He made them sit down where? Verse 39. On green grass in the wilderness? Where do you find green grass in the wilderness? And where are they at? They're beside the sea? 
Does that remind you at all of, you know, maybe the Lord? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Later, you prepare a table before me. Later, my cup overflows. The imagery here is just dripping, showing you that this Jesus is not just a man. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord himself. Do you see it? You see it now? He's bringing all of these words and images and ideas from all over the Old Testament that are all pointing to one inescapable conclusion. He's the better, greater prophet that the Old Testament promised. He's come to deliver the people from their sins and to institute a new covenant with all who come to God in faith. <laughs> now that's a wow. So, so then think of this for us, because if, if we recognize that the cost of following Jesus is high, right? It's high. We just saw that last two weeks. Yeah, understand, though, he offers a better deliverance than anything you might have been called to by any other revolutionary. He's not calling you to, to be free from a, a, a political problem, to be free from a social problem. He's calling you to be free from sin. Yeah, the cost may be high. He may ask you to do impossible things, but this is the guy who can set tables in the wilderness. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know a need he cannot meet. The cost can be high, but recognize who you're following. He's the, he's the greater, better prophet who has come to deliver us from our sins and to institute that new covenant with all who come to God by faith or in faith. And I think Mark, I love this, I think Mark even snuck a little something a little something into the telling of this story that, that points that out even more. See, the majority of the scene is reminding us of the past, right? The more, majority of the scene is pointing backwards to all this Old Testament language and, and imagery that we're supposed to understand that, that God's going to send this prophet. And yet, hidden in verse 41 is a little clue. A, a, a little clue from the future that points to the same thing. Because I asked you to note those four verbs, right? As we were going through there. Those four verbs and the order of those verbs there in verse 41 that he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave as he begins this meal with this crowd. This is what he does with them. And if you would jump ahead to Mark chapter 14, I'll put it up here so you don't need to. Mark chapter 14 to the Last Supper. What does Jesus do there? As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. He takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You know, if you think about the Last Supper and you understand it as like a foretaste of that messianic banquet that we will experience with God in heaven for all eternity, if you see that table as a foretaste of that banquet, then this day in the wilderness is like a foretaste of the foretaste. It's like a clue, hidden maybe to them, clear to us, that this man, Jesus, not like any other man, he is the better, greater prophet. It is a sign to us and to them that God has come to deliver his people just as he promised. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we just praise you 
I think that's the only right response to this, just to praise you, as you are the greater and better prophet. You're greater than Moses. Moses was a great deliverer who brought God's word and God's covenant to the people, but you've come with a greater word and a greater covenant, not, not based on the works of the law, but based on your own sacrifice of yourself for our sins, one that can forever make us pure and right before God. You're, you're greater than Moses. You're greater than Elijah and all the prophets of the past who call people back to faithfulness to God's covenant. You have come calling us simply to faith in you. And so as we stand here and we realize what, what, what Mark is doing here, what all the gospel writers are doing with that story to, to bring in all this imagery and to show us all these things, to connect this bigger picture story together, we just stand in awe. We stand in awe, recognizing that you are this promised one, this Messiah, this Christ. And you have come and you have offered a way to have a relationship with God to anyone who places their faith in you. And so today, Father, we ask that if there's anyone here who has not done that, who, who doesn't see you in that way, who has never recognized who you are, please, God, through your Spirit, open their eyes trouble their hearts, something. Just, Lord, for those of us who have seen those things, drive us to our knees in praise for the one who is greater and better than all others, who is all we need, whom, in whom we have placed all our faith. Yes, the cost may be high to follow you, but we follow one who sets tables in the wilderness. What, <laughs> what problems could we ever encounter that would be too great for you. And so, Lord Jesus, we put our hope in you as our deliverer, our provider, our king, and our savior, and we give you all the glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.